When I think through the story we're going to go to today, I thought of something I actually used to do when I did student ministry. I did this all the time with our student ministry, uh, that there are things in life that are super helpful, very useful, and extremely beneficial, right? Fire and flames, that would be considered one of those. Even get to enjoy it. I mean, not in the middle of summer, but our family loves doing campfires. So you get around the campfire and you get to laugh, you get to do s'mores, you get to have a great time, all because you're circled around a flame, all because you're circled around a campfire. Fire has so many benefits. It has so many uses. It keeps us warm. You've got a fireplace. It's helpful. It provides light. There's so many things about a fire that we would say is enjoyable, helpful, useful, and beneficial. But we also know the flip side of that, right? That the the reason fire is helpful, useful, beneficial, and enjoyable is because it is contained. It has boundaries. So right now, this flame is great because it's within the boundaries of the candle. But if that flame, if that fire gets outside of containment, outside of boundaries, it's no longer useful, helpful, enjoyable, and beneficial. It becomes destructive, And we know the destructiveness that comes from fire that is not contained or that is outside of its boundaries. It's not enjoyable anymore. It's actually causing harm. It's hurtful. It's devastating. It causes destruction with everything that it touches. So there's many things in life that are great, that are good, and are intended to be used for good, but outside of boundaries wreaks havoc and destruction and can even lead to serious injury or death, right? We know that about certain things in life. God has given us so many things in our life that have been intended for good, even intended for our good, yet the devil is sneaky and brilliant. Yes, I admit the devil is brilliant because what the devil is able to do is able to twist what God has intended for good and turn it into something outside of the way God intended for it to be used. So now it is not helpful and enjoyable and beneficial, but now it's wreaking havoc and it's causing destruction and it's hurting others and it's harmful to yourself and it leads down a very dangerous road. I say all that because we've been studying the life of David, King David, and we have seen David be so faithful from the moment he was anointed king, but still not technically king, all the way to he's finally king and he has been victorious. He has been faithful. We saw last week just how kind King David is. He is a wonderful example for us to follow except for today. Today, as you might guess by the introduction, we are looking at David's story of David and Bathsheba. And just by saying that, David tends to be known by two of his most known stories, by David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. So buckle up. You're going to have a lot of fun today. (laughs) You're like, really? If you're here for the first time, we don't talk about David and Bathsheba every single week. But isn't that interesting, though, how we know David by his greatest victory and his deepest regret? I feel like that's almost part of our life, too that we tend to focus on the highest of highs and then the lowest of lows, that people remember us by the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. So as we look at the story of David and Bathsheba, David's moral failure, let me just give a couple disclaimers. The first one, 
please do not make what we're reading through today just about an affair and David committing adultery. Yes, yeah, so that is the act, that is the specific sin that David committed, but it is so much bigger than that. There's so much to, more to this story than just David had an affair. Because the reason I say that is you could easily disengage from this passage and say, well, that'll never happen to me, or I've never done that, so it doesn't apply to me. Or you could say, I've walked down that road, and all this feels like it's going to do is bring up bad memories and more guilt and more shame. So let me say this about the story of David and Bathsheba. You are going to see a progression through the story that is not just a progression in David's life. It's the same progression in our life as well. So yes, we're going to learn some things from David, more so on what not to do. But more important than even learning from David's mistakes, we are going to see at the end of the story the absolute unimaginable greatness of God's forgiveness. That's the point of this story. It's not to add shame or to add guilt. It's not to pigeonhole what David did and isolate it. It's to look at David's story as a whole, but look at God's story as a bigger picture and recognize how good our God is, how desperate we are for a savior. So to start with that, Let's focus on that progression. James chapter one tells us what this progression of temptation to sin is. And as we talk about this progression, I wanna set this up because you're gonna see this in the story of David and you're gonna see it in your life. I see it in my life as well. James chapter one, verse 14, we're told this, that temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and then drag us away. Already you hear the progression. We have these desires in us, these selfish desires that entice us. It looks good. It's what feels good. It's what we think we want. So we're enticed and then we're eventually dragged away. We put one foot in and then the whole self goes with it. But then the progression continues. Verse 15, these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to, this is an important word because we're going to come back to it later. What is it? When sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. It's heavy, but that's what we're told. That's the progression of temptation to sin that leads us down the path of destruction and ultimately death. That's the progression we see in David's story. It's the same progression we will see in our lives of temptation and sin and the destruction. But don't miss God's grace in the story. Don't miss how our Savior comes to our rescue. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into David's story today. God, thank you so much for the story that we get to read today. I pray that it's not just a story to read, but I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you speak to us individually. Yes, this, this passage, this, this story of David's life can be difficult to read through. It can bring up bad memories. It can cause all kinds of emotions. But God, I pray that through all of it, we stay focused not on the sin, but on our Savior. That yes, we all have mistakes, which is why we all need you. So Jesus, would you speak to us? Would you move in our hearts? Remind us of your grace and your mercy, your love and your forgiveness in this story. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you've got your Bible, we are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's actually going to go through two chapters. So you ready for two chapters today? 
Some of you are like, I got lunch plans. I got, I'll still get you out relatively on time. Um, but 2 Samuel chapter 11, here's where the story begins. And as we begin, there's three parts of the story. Part one is going to be the warnings that David is going to give us. In other words, here's what led to David's affair. Let's be aware of those so that we don't follow in his footsteps. Let's learn from his mistakes. So we're going to see some of the warnings. The second part is we're going to see the cover-up. Every good sin story has a real good cover-up story. So we're going to see the cover-up story, how David tries to fix what he messed up. And then lastly, and most importantly, we're going to see how God comes to the rescue and how the Savior does exactly what he promises to do. So think of this story in those three parts, the warnings, the cover-up, and then the Savior. Here's what we read. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday nap, David got out of bed. I love that part. See, naps are in the Bible. Not necessarily a bad thing, not necessarily a good thing all the time, as we'll see, but Naps are important. So late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told that she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Quick side note, David knew Uriah extremely well. Like you need to know that this isn't just some random person in David's kingdom. So we're going to actually see this next week. David had a group of special forces men that, that we see in scripture called David's 30, his mighty men, his warriors. And Uriah the Hittite was one of those 30. So this isn't like it's some guy that's in your kingdom and you have no like relationship name face with him. When he heard Uriah the Hittite, that's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He had a face with that name. He had memories with that person. He had battle scars with that person. It was a close friend of David's. So the servant says, tells David who she is. She's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Verse four, then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Now notice as, as we're reading this story, there's a lot that builds up to David's mistake, a lot that builds up to David's sin. And just for clarity's sake, sin, it's a big churchy word, but sin is no more than missing the mark. So God has given us a standard. He has given us a mark to hit righteousness and anything that misses the mark that's considered sin. So David missed the mark based on God's commands. So there's a lot that leads up to David's sin. The actual decision is, is pretty short. It's not even a full sentence. And what we want to understand here is David's sin was not just a one mistake. It wasn't just a quick decision. It was a multiple, it was multiple decisions and choices that built up and led to that one decision. So like I said, the first part acts as like a warning. These are the steps that David took that steered him towards sin. We talk a lot about next steps around here, taking next steps towards God and owning our faith. There are steps we can take towards God and there are steps we can take away from God. There's steps towards righteousness and there's steps towards sin. So I wanna point out the steps that David took that actually led him to his sin. The first step, I would call it carelessness. It was a step that was very careless. From the very beginning, we're told that it was the time of the year when normally kings go out to war, but David stayed behind. 
So what was careless about that? He wasn't where he was supposed to be. If David was out with his men doing what the rest of the kings should have been doing, this would not have even been a temptation. But David was careless with his environment. He was not where he was supposed to be. Was there something wrong and sinful that he stayed back? No. Was it smart? No. Was it careless? Yes. So he took a step of being careless and was careless with his environment. We also see that he was careless with how he spent his time. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David finally got out of bed. Now again, naps are not a bad thing. Did you hear me say that? I didn't get an amen for that. <laughs> naps are not a bad thing. In fact, it might be in your best spiritual health to go take a nap after church today at some point. Some of you are like, what did he just say? I could take a nap today. Yes. But it is also this fine line of, well, is that the best use of my time? That's the better question. Is this the best use of my time? Am I being a good steward of my time? Am I being careless with my time or am I being wise with my time? Because you could say the other side, work, 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 and working so hard, is that the best use of your time? Are you starting to overwork? Are you now leaning into being a workaholic? Both of those extremes of laziness and burned out and overworked, both of those are dangerous because it puts you in a careless position where you can act very carelessly. So here he was when the rest of the kings were taking care of their kingdom and doing what they were intended to do and off to war. David was taking multiple naps that stretched deep into the evening. He was careless with his time and how he spent it. And the last aspect, he just went and walked on the roof. Careless, not just with his environment and his time, but careless with what he allowed into his mind and allowed into his heart. Right? He walked out on the roof. Now, you have to understand, too, for David, since he's king, he's living in a palace. And so his roof is a lot higher than anybody else's roof in the kingdom. So when David walked out on the roof, he could see down into just about anybody's home through any window in any courtyard. So is it okay to go walk on the roof? Sure. Was it okay that David lingered? Was it okay that David used that careless act to be looking at something he shouldn't look at. I would almost compare this to, could you scroll through aimlessly the, the cable channels at midnight? Sure. Is that careless? Yes. Is anything gonna cut good come from that? Probably not. He's careless with his environment, with his time, but what he allowed into his heart as well as into his mind. Pastor Ben Stewart, he said it this way. He said, weariness... Weariness plus opportunity leads to failure. So true. Weariness causes us to become more careless. And then when the opportunity presents itself, we don't have the strength and sometimes the desire to resist. And that's what we see happen with David. He was careless. Step one, careless. Step two is he got very curious. Now, curiosity is not a bad thing. Curiosity is not evil, but just like anything, what was intended for good, the devil can twist and turn it into something that's harmful. So yes, I believe God gave us curiosity. Curiosity drives us. Curiosity moves us. Curiosity leads to innovation. But curiosity aimed in the wrong direction can fuel those unhealthy and sinful desires. So for David, notice his curiosity. After he is careless walking on the roof, he sees her. Instead of going back in the house, he says, hmm, wonder who she is. Let me get some more information. The curiosity caused him to take another step. Step two, curiosity. 
His curiosity is aimed in a wrong direction that fueled his desire, which then led very quickly to step three, contemplation. Contemplation is defined in this way, quote, to look at or view with continued, there's the key word, continued attention. So this wasn't an innocent stroll on the roof. It was a careless stroll on the roof. It wasn't just curiosity for curiosity's sake. It started out innocent. I just wanted to know who she was. I don't know anything about her. Now it's turned into I'm thinking about her. I am intent on not thinking or moving away from this situation. He's fixated mentally. So has he done anything technically wrong? Has he acted on anything wrong? Technically, no. We could have a whole other discussion on heart and mind and what Jesus says about that. But technically speaking, he hasn't done anything wrong but it has led him down to the place where he is mentally committed. And that is very difficult to walk away from. He's acted carelessly. His curiosity and his contemplation has got him in a bad spot, which then of course led to the actual decision. It was not just one decision one time. It was, a mul- it was multiple decisions that led up to the one. That's the progression. Remember, that's what James said. Our desires... They entice us, they drag us away, and he gives birth to sin. That's exactly what happened to David, and that happens in our lives as well, me included. That's how it works. So there's the warnings. Part two, the cover-up. This is when David realizes what he had done. Bathsheba gets pregnant. She tells David, hey, guess what? Surprise, I'm pregnant. So now then David goes into fix-it mode. He's like, I've got to cover this up. I can't let anybody know what's happened. I got to fix my sin on my own. And that's where we get stuck again. I've got to fix my problem. I have to fix my mistake. I have to fix my sin is what David is thinking. So as we go through the cover-up part of the story, pay attention to what happens with sin. What was the word I told you to remember out of James? That when sin grows, it's going to lead down a destructive path. Pay attention to how sin begins to grow. Because according to James, that's what's going to happen next. And we see it here. Verse 6, then David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army was getting along and how the war was progressing. Do you understand what's happening here? David's like, I've got to figure out a way to fix this. The best way to fix it is to get Uriah home, let him and his wife have some time together, so then no one will know that it was me that actually is the father of this child. So that's what he's trying to do. He's got to get Uriah home to fix this problem. Verse eight, he gets Uriah home. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. Everybody understands what we're talking about there, right? (laughs) All right, this is when King David says, Uriah, you've been working really hard. You're a great warrior. Go home, wink, wink, and relax for a little bit. Go see your wife. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But look, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. David's plan's not working. He thought this was a perfect cover-up plan that yes, he slept with Bathsheba and yes, she's pregnant, but all he has to do is get Uriah, the, the husband, to come home. And so he brings him home and he says, go home, be with your wife. I'm giving you a break, go see her. And Uriah has such integrity, is such a man of character, is such a man of honor that he refuses to go home to comfort when his men are on the battlefield fighting for their country. He refuses because of his integrity, because of his character. He stays put. 
course, that upsets David. He's like, this isn't working. This isn't the plan that I had. His cover-up plan is not working. So he goes to phase two of his cover-up plan, verse 13. Then David invited him, Uriah, to, over to dinner and got him drunk. If I can't get him to do it in his right mind, I'll at least get him drunk and see if we can fix it that way. But even then, David could not get Uriah to go home to his wife. And again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. David's plan to cover his sin, to fix his problem, is not working. And I would have to imagine David is starting to panic. What am I going to do? What am I going to do now? How am I going to get this to be covered up? So he escalates his plan. We see sin grow, verse 14. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. I want to make sure we understand what that sentence said. David wrote a letter to Joab, which is the commander on the front lines of the battle that's being fought. We read about that in verse 1. So David writes a letter, puts it in an envelope, and seals it, hands it to Uriah. Uriah is now going to take that sealed envelope with that letter that he has not read, is going to carry it all the way to the front lines, hand it to Joab, his commander. That's what's taking place. And I say that because look, look at what the letter says. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so he will be killed. Uriah is carrying in his hand from his king to his commander, his death sentence. And he's done nothing wrong. So, Verse 16, Joab assigned Uriah to the spot closest to the city where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out to the city to fight, of course, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Let's talk about the cover-up part. What was the word from James that we said? Grow. Sin grows. Sin never stays small. David, yes, committed adultery, had an affair, but in the process of trying to cover that up on his own, he ended up committing many, many, many more sins. It wasn't just the one. It led to many more. Sins of lying, deceit, deception, drunkenness, murder, all with the intent of covering up one. Don't miss that. In the attempt of covering up one, he ended up committing a whole lot more. That's what sin does. Sin does not stay contained. It never stays small. Like James tells us, and like we read here, it grows and it wreaks havoc, destruction, and damages other people's lives. To the point of, did you not, did you see this last part? Don't miss this. Yes, Uriah the Hittite was killed, but did you notice who else was killed also? Some other random innocent soldiers. And we were told that when the, other, when the enemy came out to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. So often, we think our sin is just our little problem. I'm not hurting anybody else. This is just my issue. This is my problem. Everybody has something they struggle with. This is just mine, but it's not hurting anybody. So we rationalize and we justify our own little sins that we all struggle with, me included. We can easily justify them. But what I want us to see here from David's story, as well as what James says, is it doesn't just end here with us. Sin is destructive to the people around us. 
David's sin not just led to uh, the, the victimization of Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, along with several other Israelite soldiers that we don't have names for. So my sin and your sin, it's not just our problem. It impacts and hurts people around us, even if that's not the intent. It will always hurt people around us. That's what James says. Our desires, that enticement, they drag us away, gives birth to sin. And where sin is allowed to grow, where we try to cover up sin, where we try to take care of our own sin, it leads to destruction and death. Not just about us. It's about the other people around us. Your sin and my sin goes beyond just us. So that's the cover. It's a super encouraging sermon so far, isn't it? We're doing great. The grace part is coming, I promise. And intentionally, I think we read the story. There's so much leading up to it for that reason, to recognize the magnitude of it. But grace and forgiveness is coming. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her, brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. David at this point feels like, whew, that was close. I made my mistake. I recognized that I almost got caught, but I was able to contain my sin. He thinks at this point, he's taken care of it. And it's an example of a man in power with wealth and everything that he has that seems like he's gonna get away with it. Sure, maybe, maybe Bathsheba's son looks a little bit like me, but of course, I'm now her husband, so it's okay. He's rationalized it, and he thinks he's gotten away with it, but that's not the end of this verse. There's one more sentence. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. The Lord was displeased. That's not a word we see often around David, Typically, and he was faithful, he was a man after God's own heart, and David was righteous, and David obeyed, and, and David was good to the people. Like Those are usually the words and phrases surrounding David's name, but here, for very few times, we see, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And this is kind of the hard part and the scary part. We think we get away with it, we think we cover it up, and we take care of it on our own, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. He sees, he knows. And so now God is going to intervene. God is gonna move in, move into the story and move it to the third part. Here's the grace part. Here's the grace part. Chapter 12, chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet. So Nathan is a prophet. In other words, God speaks to Nathan and then Nathan speaks to God's people. In this case, Nathan is gonna speak on God's behalf to David. And so Nathan tells David this story. Here's the story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned, owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. Can we all agree that this man has an interesting and odd relationship with his lamb? But we know it's not really about a lamb, right? Nathan is getting a point across. He's, he's building up to what has happened in David's life. It's verse four, he goes on with the story. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. The whole point of that story is to mirror what David had done, a man with wealth and riches and power with no regard to other people's lives, 
doing whatever he wanted, acting on his impulses, selfishly living out his life. And he presents this story to David. And David's response is fascinating. Verse 5, David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. Nathan's thinking like, ooh, be careful with what you say next. He must repay, David goes on, he must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one that he stole for having no pity. That's David's response. Basically, when he looks in the mirror. And here, if you know this story, a pretty famous verse, verse seven, then Nathan said to David, David, you are that man. What you just heard in that story is a fictional story, but it points to what you have done. You have taken what's not yours with complete disregard to not just human life, but human dignity, and of course, to the commands of God. You are that man. But he continues, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. In other words, God is telling David, I've given you everything. And then he asks a rhetorical question in verse nine, so why? David, why? Why was this not enough? Why then did, have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? Now he tells him, I know what you did. For you've murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. He sums it up in one sentence. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. That's the consequence. Sin always has consequences. Do you notice that God didn't start with, I know what you did. You took Uriah's wife to be your own. You killed him. Like he doesn't start there. He ends there. And I think it's interesting that God through Nathan actually starts with, I gave you everything. I anointed you king. I protected you from Saul. I gave you the kingdoms. I gave you the throne and I would have given you, did you catch that? And I would have given you much, much more if that wasn't enough. So here's what I think. Based on how God responds in this moment and the language that God uses through Nathan, I think that there's a great lesson here on contentment, kind of a side little lesson, that I think somewhere along David's life, he got less and less and less and less content. And then when there was an opportunity to take something more, take something he didn't have, take something that he felt he needed and wanted, he was no longer content, and so he took. So if I could encourage us, fight temptation with contentment and gratitude. If David had been content with all that God had already provided, I don't need somebody else's wife. I mean, we should say that anyway, but especially for David in this sense. Contentment. Gratitude says, I'm thankful for what God has already done. Contentment says, I'm thankful for what God has given me. Gratitude says, I'm thankful for what God has done. That removes the temptations, remember, that entice us and drag us away. David was less and less content, less and less grateful, which opened up the door for temptation to grab a hold and for sin to be committed. But then we get to the best part of the entire story. One more verse. Verse 13, it's the best verse of this entire story. It's a story of grace. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Let me comment on a couple things here. First of all, confess gets a really bad rap. 
Like, we don't say that in a positive light. Hey, I confess today. Like, it's not a positive thing usually, is it? It's a, I don't want to confess. Don't make me confess. You must confess. Like, it's usually not surrounded with positivity. And understandably so, but literally confess or confession just means agree with and acknowledge. That's all it literally means. So David, by confessing, is agreeing, I sinned, and he's acknowledging his need for a savior. I tried to cover it up, that totally didn't work. So yes, I agree that I sinned, and I acknowledge I need someone else to save me. That is the purpose of confession, and that is a great thing, because we all can say that. Yeah, 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 I, I've totally missed the mark at times. And covering it up, I can't do that. I can't fix that on my own. So I am, I recognize, I admit, I acknowledge I need a savior. And that's what David does here. He confessed, I have sinned. And notice who he says, I sinned against. Not Bathsheba, not Uriah, not those other soldiers that were unfortunate collateral damage to his cover-up plan. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Ultimately, our sin is always against God. And David finally recognizes that, that it's against God. Oh, but then God's response. The very next line. Not, uh, yeah, 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 you, you really messed this one up, David. There's not guilt piled on. There's not shame thrown at David. There's not a shoulda, woulda, coulda, David. It's not get out of my sight, David. The next part says, and then Nathan replied, again, on behalf of the Lord, yes, you did mess this up. But... The Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Oh, that's the best part of the story. Notice that God doesn't turn a blind eye. He says, yes, no, I, I agree with you, David. Yes, you really did mess this one up. Yes, you sinned. That is accurate. God doesn't say, well, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. Could have been a lot worse, David. So it's not, a, well, you know, I'll let this one slide this one time, but don't you do it again. No, like God is agreeing with and recognizing the depth and the destruction and the gravity of David's sin. But he says, but I forgive you. But you have been forgiven and you won't die for this sin. Because remember what James 1 told us? That our desires, the temptations, they entice us, they drag us away. And where sin is grown and where it continues to grow, it leads to death. So God says, yes, you sinned but yes, I've forgiven you. And no, you won't have to pay the price for your sin. It seems almost too simple, doesn't it? I mean, David really hurt a lot of people. David did a lot wrong. How can God forgive him in one sentence? How can God take away the, the penalty in one sentence? Like, what about Uriah? Like, where's justice for Uriah? What about those other soldiers that were caught in the crossfire? Like, where's David's penalty? He deserves to have something happen here. And if you keep reading, there are definitely consequences, but David still is forgiven. If you were to dig into that word forgiveness a little bit deeper, you would see that the meaning behind forgiveness is the idea of transfer. So what God is telling David, yes, David, you have sinned. So David, I'm going to take your sin away from you. I'm going to transfer it and put it on someone else. And that person is going to pay for your sin. David, you're not going to die, but someone else is. I'm going to transfer, transfer your sin to someone else. In church, that's exactly what 
Jesus has done for us. God looks at every single one of us, me included, and says, Brian, yes, you have sinned, but I forgive you, so I'm going to take your sin away, and I'm going to transfer it, and I'm going to put it on my son, Jesus. 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. He's paying the price for our sin. He's paying the penalty for David's sin and yours and mine. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Not made right with God by covering up our sin, not made right with God by trying to fix our own sin. The only way for sin to be covered up is through the cross. It's only through Jesus. That is the best part of this story. So yes, when we read the story of David and Bathsheba, there's a lot, a lot of great lessons to pull out on how we should make sure we're taking steps towards God and not towards sin. And, and James lines that out. The story of David lines that out on how we shouldn't be careless and too curious and making sure we're putting the right things into our heart and our mind and we're looking at the right things. We're not putting ourselves in wrong situations. We could go on and on and on about how to pre try to prevent that, but the reality is we are all gonna stumble and fall. For we all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. And if we've all sinned, that means we all need a savior because we cannot fix this on our own. We cannot fix this on our own. Lots, lots of times I get asked like, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to walk with Jesus? It's definitely more than just a one sentence, but if I were to do my best to give a one sentence answer on the Christian life, here's how I would say it. The Christian life, the life of a Christian is not do better or be good, but to live in grace. There's a lot more to that, but that'd be my one sentence. It's not just do better. And it's not just be really good because we will never be able to be good enough. And if you're living a life where you're just trying to do better and be good, you know where that's gonna lead you if you're not already there? Frustration, exhaustion, isolation. Oh, it's just the list goes on and on and on because you're not gonna be able to measure up. You're gonna be frustrated and it's gonna push you away from God. Recognize I'm not good enough. And I can't just live my life every day. Well, I'm gonna to try to do better today. I'm gonna to try to do better today. We live in grace. Grace only comes through God, God's son, Jesus, for what he did on the cross. Now, does that mean that we don't try to be good and do better? Well, of course we try, but it comes out of grace. The focus is on grace and not the good part. It's because of the grace that I've received that I wanna please my heavenly father. It's out of the grace and forgiveness that I've received that I want to try to take steps towards him. And yes, I will stumble, but I will keep stumbling in the right direction. May our focus be on grace. So here's what I'd like to do with this. Regardless of where you are at spiritually, maybe you've not accepted Christ as your Lord and savior. You're living with that shame and you're living with that guilt. You look at David's story and you're like, man, you're writing mine. Maybe you've accepted Christ, but you're still holding on to some guilt. You don't feel that freedom and that joy that we often talk about as we read God's word. Let me read this and, I, and then I'll tell you what I want you to do with it. This is actually from Psalm 51. And this entire Psalm is what David wrote after he confessed his sin to God. So this is in the midst of what we just read. 
David writes this in chapter 51, verse 7. He says to God, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, would you give me back my joy again? For you have broken me. That's not always a bad thing. Because when we're broken, he has the chance to rebuild us and to restore us and to redeem us. Oh, you have broken me. So now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins, but remove the stain of my guilt. And I love this last part. Create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. There's so much in there, but that's what confession looks like. God, I've sinned and I've sinned against you. I need you to fix this. I need you to clean me. I need you to purify me. And when you do, I want you to restore me to who you desire me to be. And as you restore me, create in me a clean heart that's no longer divided, but that remains loyal to you. If you would, if you'd close your eyes with me, I'm gonna read that one more time. This time you have a little bit more context and this time I would ask that you would make this your own. What does it look like for you to come before God and make these your words? Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, would you give me back my joy again? For you have broken me, but now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins, but God, would you remove the stain of my guilt? Create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. God, that is our prayer. That is our confession as we move towards you. It is not a prayer of let me fix this on my own and then I will come to you. It is a prayer of God, I can't do this without you. We are sinners in desperate need of a savior. So would you purify our hearts? Would you create in us a clean heart that is no longer divided but loyal to you? Yes, we will continue to make mistakes. We will keep missing the mark, but I pray that we would stumble in the right direction that we would hold on to your grace because your grace is so much greater than any of our guilt or shame or sin. God, thank you so much for sending your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sin, that our sin would be transferred from us to him. Jesus, thank you for being willing to take on my sin and to pay the price, to die in my place so that I could have life, not just in this life, but eternal life with you forever in heaven. God, I pray that we would come to you with this confession that we would invite you into our heart and that we would hold on to grace and let go of the guilt. In Jesus' name, amen.